Welcome to the Governance Podcast here at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Mark Pennington. I'm the Director of the Centre and Head of the Department of Political Economy uh, in which the Centre is housed. We're delighted to have with us today Professor Jon Elster. Jon is Robert K. Merton Professor of Social Sciences at Columbia University. He's one of the world's leading contributors on debates concerning the methodology and philosophy of the social sciences, the status of rational choice theory as an explanatory tool, theories of distributive justice, and understanding the role of constitutions. His many works include, among others, Making Sense of Marx, Ulysses and the Sirens, The Cement of Society, and more recently, Securities Against Misrule. Jan, it's very good to have you with us here today at the centre. Um, you're giving a public lecture for us tomorrow entitled Emotions in History. I wonder whether you could give a brief summary of the argument that you'll be giving for the benefit of our listeners. Yes, I'll do so in a slightly autobiographical manner uh, to explain uh, how I came to attach so much importance to uh, emotions and downgrade both reason and rationality. Reason being the pursuit of the public interest, rationality being instrumental choice of uh, optimal means to a given end. So I'll give an example uh, from constitution making, which you just mentioned. So I first published something on constitution making in Ulysses and Sirens, that you mentioned, from 1977, I guess, the very first version, where I portrayed institution, constitution making as a situation where calm, rational, dispassionate individuals deliberate about the public good to, to prevent future generations from indulging in their passions and their interests. So, reason versus passion and interest. Uh, unfortunately, that image, which I, which I illustrated by the metaphor of Ulysses and the Sirens, took some hold in the profession, which I deeply regret, because it's all wrong. So, next time I visited uh, the issue in early 1990s, to reason I added self-interest, rational pursuit of self-interest. For instance, in the uh, Federal Convention, there was quite a bit of reason, good reasoning, but also massive self-interest, notably with respect to the role of slavery in the Constitution and, and trade and other issues. So that was a step forward from pure reason to reason and self-interest and rationality. But that wasn't good enough either. And I discovered why that was insufficient when I read up on the making of the first French Constitution in 1791 started in 1789, where I realized that passion was massively important in, uh, in making these constitutions, both passions within the assembly and passions in the street, which influenced the constitution makers. So I see this part of my work as a constant progression from the simple, you know, calm and dispassionate framer argument to the uh, self-interested rational framers argument to the uh, passionate, often irrational because the passions got, you know, got um, uh, well, as I put it somewhere else, emotions give us a steady life, uh, goal in life, but prevent us also from going steadily in that direction. So that's so that's what I see as happening. And so I recently published several articles on the political psychology of constitution making, where where the role of passion is, is very important. So that may be some kind of answer to your question. Well, that's, that's a very good answer uh, to the question. Perhaps we could pursue that a little bit more. So a lot of your work in the past has been engaged with 
rational choice models or economic models uh, applied to various social phenomena in one form or another. You're now mentioning the role of psychology. Um, what role do you think psychology should play in relation to the kind of more rationality-oriented work that you've, you've done in the past? Well, by psychology, I understand also behavioral economics, yes. which is... And I've come to think that the social sciences in general should have two main pillars, uh, history and psychology, including, as I said, behavioral economics. And, of course, standard economics might have a place to... some role to play, too, because, of course, we often want to appeal to rationality. But mostly in the more trivial and simplistic forms, where the principle of rational choice is more like a principle of least effort. You don't do with more resources, but you could do with fewer. And not these ultra-sophisticated models, which impute to agents, uh, uh, I'm caricaturing a bit here, capacity to make instant calculations that uh, economists and political scientists spend years learning to, to, to carry out. So uh, I'm all for common sense rationality. Every day we make probably hundreds of decisions that are strictly speaking rational in the sense that I mentioned, least effort we don't do with. We don't bring coal to Newcastle. But um, uh, but I'm, I'm puzzled by the tendency of the economics profession and large parts of the political science profession to impute to individuals capacities that we know they don't have. And then they say, oh, this is just as if rationality. But the answer of as if rationality only makes sense if you can identify a non-intentional mechanism that's, that reliably mimics intentional rationality. And nobody has done that. Hmm. So you're saying there that common sense rationality can play a role in understanding political institutions or economic institutions or individual behavior within them. Individual behavior, certainly. Um, to give an example from Hume's History of England, a book I love, uh, has hundreds of insights. He explains why Queen Elizabeth I didn't name her successor, because she thought rationally if he did, he would kill her. So that's a simple example of rational choice. Uh, and also why the popes um, uh, create, extended the, um, uh, the degrees of kinship that were forbidden for marriages, because they would get a lot of money from dispensing from these uh, regulations. That's a very simple rational choice models. Rational choice explanation of institutions. That I find harder to, to grasp because you would have to look at their origin, not at, whether, whether, not at their uh, functioning. Uh, I think this is something I've been thinking about a lot, writing about a lot, functional explanation, where you have an institution that seems to produce benefits for someone or something, and you think these benefits explain it. But that is just a conjunction of two classical uh, statements, cui bono and post hoc ergo propter hoc. Combination of those two uh, axioms can create a lot of, lot of bad social science. Hmm. So, I mean, I, one example of that, would, would you say, is some of the Chicago school understandings of institutions, which imply that 
the institutions that are chosen are efficient in some sense, um, because if they weren't, rational agents would have changed them. Uh, and you have the strange situation there where it's hard to account for any sort of institutional uh, change because uh, equilibrium is built into the to the model and efficiency well, is built uh, into the model. Well, you no, know, rational agents would have to get their act together. Yes. And getting their act together is a big, big thing because the free rider problem is pervasive in this situation. So you might, might have a bad equilibrium, mm-hmm. uh, such as foot binding in Chinese history. It was a bad equilibrium because no individual family had an incentive to not bind the feet of their daughters because they wouldn't get married. But mm-hmm. it was, of course, massively inefficient. And people probably knew that. But no individual person had an incentive to change, to, to change unilaterally it. deviate yeah. from a pattern. So I think you cannot imagine, there's no invisible hand that, uh, that by which... Selects for institutions. That are efficient, yeah. Yeah. So if we don't explain the origin of institutions through a rational choice model, um, or at least if that model has quite serious limitations, is there any way in which a model that focuses on the psychological dimension or the emotional dimension that you refer to uh, provides a better explanation for the origin of institutions. Is that the direction in which you'd want to go if we recognize the limits of the rational choice model? Well, the Constitution, I guess, is a kind of institution, so that would, uh, given what I said at the beginning, be an example of how, by very idiosyncratic, non-generalizable uh, mechanisms, institutions come into effect. Um, the British Parliament was never really created. It just sort of happened, grew over the years. Uh, I was just reading, uh, yes, uh, a book on, on 17th century, 18th century England, where suddenly the idea of statecraft um, came, appeared as you could actually do things rationally, systematically, to be efficient. Whereas previously in the Middle Ages, institutions just grew or happened. Now they were supposed to be made. Now they were massively inefficient. And for instance, the British policy towards North, North America was ill-informed uh, and, and chaotic, but they thought they had something called statecraft, but it never did, never worked. So they, to the extent that, for instance, the policy towards the colonists worked, it was when it was neglected. Mm-hmm. So that's not a very optimistic view. So, would your view of institutions be more along the kind of model that recognizes that they're often the product of accidents that arise from conjunctions of all kinds of eventualities that really don't necessarily have more universal implications? Well, accidents and also a tendency when something is wrong to fix it by adding a new wrinkle. And then, you know, think rather than going back and thinking hard from scratch, you add a new wrinkle, and then you get systems that grow and become incredibly complicated, like the law, for instance, so mm-hmm. complicated that nobody understands it. So the natural tendency, uh, I guess, or common tendency is to, rather than try to fix a system, to, to fix it by adding something to get rid of these perverse effects. And then, of course, you get new perverse effects in a, mm-hmm. in a cascade. And at the end, nobody understands anything. So what can we say then, or or can we say anything, about whether certain kinds of institutions have beneficial properties relative to other kinds of institutions? Well, I think the pattern system 
has obviously beneficial properties. In fact, as you probably know, it's written into the American Constitution that temporary monopolies should be granted to inventors. That's mm-hmm. a very clear-cut case. Yeah. Um, although, as Schumpeter pointed out, it has the effect of speeding up the rate of innovation, but also the effect of slowing down the diffusion of innovation. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's tricky. But I think that's a good example. Uh, we can clearly see that this makes sense to have a patent system. And that's an example of how you think a fairly simple example of rational choice theorizing yeah, because could inform a sensible institutional yeah, design. Yeah, simply based on, you know, if inventors are rewarded, more inventions yeah. will be made. Yeah. Uh, not, not very sophisticated, yeah. but very yeah. important. Yeah. And some people have claimed that absence of a patent system was the explanation of one explanation for stagnation of Ch- the Chinese economy, which mm-hmm. at one point was much more advanced than the Western economy. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know whether that's true or not, but there is a theory that that uh, that was the case. So that could be one example. Then the other examples are much more dubious. For instance, the alleged beneficial effects of bicameralism. Mm-hmm. The upper chamber is supposed to be a break on the impulses of the lower chamber. If you try to find empirical support for that statement, it's very hard. In fact, in four of the most decisive votes in American history, from the Alien and Sedition Act to the um, uh, to the attack on, on Iraq, uh, the Senate was at least as belligerent, perhaps more, than, than the lower house. Uh, j- j- perhaps more you know, impulsive and passionate than the lower house. So, so there's very little evidence for that alleged benefit of bicameralism. If In fact, the bicameralism served very different purposes to protect money or to protect, uh, in, in the US, the individual states. But this, but this idea of generating wisdom was, I think, empirically very badly supported. If we just go back, uh, thinking about staying with the, the theme of how we understand institutions and their either their advantages or their pathologies if you like if we go back to this role of emotion um, if emotion is an important factor in shaping institutions the way they're formed and perhaps even you know the way they persist um, that strikes to me to imply something like the notion of I mean how can I put this sort of Marian haste uh, re- Repent at leisure (laughs) might be the sort of situation they're in where people, because of emotional reasons, create certain institutions or structures um, that could be inefficient um, or malfunction in various ways. That's the case of the Patriot Act in the US, which was adapted in record time, one month or six weeks or something, whereas comparably complex acts usually take two years in the Congress Mm -hmm. to sort out all the perverse effects, unintended effects, the all the bugs. And, of course, it didn't work because, as Abu Ghraib and, and uh, Guantanamo showed, you know, basically for, to simplify uh, a lot, for each terrorist you catch or deter, you create two. So, but people didn't take the time to think about that. So that was certainly a case of, as I said, Marion haste uh, and repent at leisure. An interesting example of that at the military scale was the recruitment after 9-11 to the American military. Lots of young people signed up, but when they actually had to to do something more definitive than expressing an interest, very few did. It was in the heat of the moment. You are, you 
you know, might do that, but then, and this was, so this is, the Marian haste, uh, repent at leisure, what I call the urgency of emotions, uh, or together with their, uh, with their, their short half-life, explains a lot, I think. So if we understand that emotions play quite a significant role in the way institutions are chosen or perhaps develop. Okay, so let's just distinguish uh, how they are chosen and how they operate. Yeah. Because constitutions, as seen as uh, institutions, which I think they should be, uh, then we can talk about how emotions shape how they are made. But then within an existing institution, like Congress, then we can see yeah. whether bicameralism works or not, whether the Senate actually does uh, uh, repress or, or minimize the role of, of the spontaneous lower house. So there's two di different issues, and emotions enter at both levels in creation and in the operation. And in the operation. Okay. So uh, what I was wondering there was whether you had whether you were working with uh, some sort of a model where emotional choice influences the way in which institutions are originally created yeah. but then within that set of rules is that the level at which a more rational choice type model kicks in or is it emotions all the way down so that emotions actually are responsible for creating institutions but they're also responsible for the way in which people play the games well, I, that I operate general, within. I wouldn't generalize that much because to return to the pattern system that yeah. was I don't think the emotions had anything to do with that. It just made obvious sense. Although it took a long time for people to understand that. It just made obvious sense. And uh, and, I, and I also think that you know, the randomization of certain decisions also makes obvious sense once you come to think of it. So I don't think all institutional uh, all decisions of institutional choices. I, I, would, I don't want to generalize. In fact, I, I'm really opposed to generalizations. Uh, I just you know, like looking at cases and, uh, and I'm more and more uh, obsessed with detail and to see how you know, this incredibly interplay, incredibly complex interplay between uh, individuals and within, within individuals of separate motivations, how it plays out in practice. And just maybe I'm, with age I'm getting closer to being a novelist as my father was, and his father, and his father. Well, that... That's very interesting. I mean, I, I'm going to come on to um, actually some some of what you've written about the role of prediction in in social science and whether we have too great ambitions for social science in in a few moments. But would I take from from what you've just said there about the importance of specific cases, not generalising too much, that you would be against the idea that even if we recognize the role of institute of emotions in forming institutions, that we can't have some notion of institutional design to deal with the effects of emotional decision-making. Because, I mean, in behavioral economics, for example, people are concerned that sure. you design the institutions taking into account the fact that people sure. are irrational in certain dimensions. Yeah, and sure. I'm getting the sense that you might even be quite skeptical of that sort of view, that you could even begin to design something that takes into account these variations in behavior. Uh, well, it's... Let me take one example which is interesting and important, and I think it understood the third cost fallacy. Uh, I think the Sarkozy's fallacy is largely due to uh, amour propre, egocentricity. People refuse to recognize that they made a bad decision, so they stick to it, just because they, they want, want to admit to themselves that they made a mistake, or to others, but also even to themselves. 
Now, could you possibly generate a system for uh, counteracting the sound cost fallacy? Sure, you could have periodical audits and so on, but they would be biased too. So it's, uh, and as I said earlier, bicameralism, if it were ever, which it wasn't, designed to curb popular enthusiasm, doesn't work. So uh, the idea that you could, um, now of course there, there are some ways, which are discussed in one of my books, Security Against Misrule, basically by secrecy. So secrecy in institutions prevent them from being influenced by by the street, roughly speaking, mm -hmm. and that was why the Pedrick Convention succeeded. And as Madison said afterwards, if the proceedings had been open to the public, there wouldn't have been a constitution. Now, you can argue that wasn't a very good constitution, and in fact, I would argue so, but it was adopted and has persisted. So many people will say that, ipso facto, it's a good constitution. Well, I wouldn't agree with that, but that's a separate issue. But yes, you can do, you can do things like that. A very good example, a very interesting example is to get rid of misogyny in hiring for musicians. A famous example, when they put the screen between the auditioners and the selectors, the percentage of women went up dramatically because this unconscious bias, prejudice, which is not quite an emotion, but sort of like an emotion, had not, nothing to work on. So, uh, so there are other things one can do like that, or like the Greek Areopagos did, they deliberate in the dark. So, 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 so that's what I've been arguing in that book systematically, that you can't really design institutions so as to make good decisions, because nobody knows what that is, I argue. But you can prevent decision-makers from being influenced by self-interest, passion, prejudice, and cognitive bias. And that will, you know, as Bentham said, it's a very Benthamite argument, explicitly so. That will get you some way. So we might, I mean, we... Would it be fair to say that we, we might not know um, necessarily what are good decisions in some, certainly not in some optimizing sense, but but can we say anything about what might what might be bad decisions? No, no, I don't think so. No, 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 not mm -hmm. in my Benthamite uh, no. you know, vocabulary. That's no, because if you could say that, we could then obviously we'd also say stuff. No, no, Bentham said it should be just you know preventing the. Preventing the prevention of, of, of wisdom or something like that, uh, or uh, well, so. But it's it's a negative conception of institutional design to minimize the influence on decision makers. Or factors that are are obviously irrelevant to decisions. That's why juries, for instance, chose at random, so they cannot be bribed, and deliberate in secret, so they cannot be bribed. And also, uh, and also why. Uh, often, uh, judges refuse to show grotesque color pictures of, of a victim because they know that the effect that that will have, and so on and so forth. So juries are a very good case study for studying institutional design, and a very long history back to to the Athenians to the present, and lots of variations. And um, so that's I have a long chapter in this book I mentioned, Securities Against Misrule on the on the history of the jury from that perspective. So the next question I wanted to, to ask you on, given the role of indeterminacy that you're referring to here, I wonder whether you could say a bit more about what you think are uh, the excessive ambitions of contemporary social science. I mean, this is a theme that 
you've developed in some of your recent work, the idea that a lot of contemporary social science is about um, prediction, uh, including predicting the effects of various institutional arrangements. Much of what you're saying is seeming to push back against that. I wonder whether you could say something about what, if any, role you think there is for a predictive social science. Well, maybe not so, so much predictive social science, but predictive social scientific, scientifically informed practices, like uh, uh, officials in the Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank and so on, whose job it is to fine-tune the economy at the margin. So they are very good at, pretty good, obviously not infallible, as we know from the last 10 years, but pretty good at predicting the uh, short-term effects of small changes, interest rate or in uh, uh, whatever it, it might be, short-term effect of, let's say, the interest rate or, or, or a tax, change in taxes. But large changes uh, may be impossible to predict. So let me just give one example. Uh, we know pretty much, I think, what would happen if the cigarette price was increased by 2% or maybe even 10%. Uh, we can figure out what the cons- result in, in um, demand would be or whether the net tax income would be go up or down. But if somebody proposed to uh, double the price of cigarettes, nobody c- can predict how much smuggling there would be. Or with respect to liquor, how much smuggling and home brewing there would be. And, and so on. So these are no, so sh- predicting, as I said, small uh, short-term effects or small changes. That's doable because it's done, and of course it's fallible, but it's it's done, and by and large this is invaluable, because uh, in the in the 17th century in England, 18th century when the idea of statecraft was developed, they got everything wrong, uh, but now they, there's a profession who does it gets it right most of the time. Now, predicting large events, you know, we are not just very good at it. So the social sciences didn't predict the downfall of communism and didn't predict the re-emergence of illiberal democracies after the downfall of communism. So uh, it's, and uh, and in a way, even retrodiction uh, may be too hard if the problems are really big. So the transition from feudalism to capitalism, the transition is too big. Transition from feudalism to capitalism in England, sure, or in France, sure. But the transition, it, some questions are just too big for our small minds. So that's why modesty is very important. Uh, or, or, as Pascal said, the first task of, re- task of reason is to ter- determine its own limits. Mm-hmm. So if prediction um, is very limited, can we nonetheless have a model of social science which is based more on understanding in very context-specific circumstances? Or even is the term understanding something that you would well, find to... yes and no. I think what we have is a toolbox of mechanisms, toolbox of ways in which things can happen. And we cannot say ahead of time which of these uh, will occur, but we can maybe exclude some possible uh, scenarios. But... Uh, the main obstacle to prediction uh, in human affairs is what Keynes emphasized, the massive importance of uncertainty, uh, not only in the long term, but even in me- medium term, five or ten years. So I think, in fact, that is one of the major challenges to political 
science and to any social science today, to how to cope with massive structural uncertainty, for instance, climate change. Mm-hmm. There are people like Martin Weizmann who argue that there is structural uncertainty in the sense that uh, uh, the rare the, the the parameters estimated parameters of the model would require having more data than we actually have. Mm. So, so what do we do in the face of structural uncertainty? We cannot simply assume the worst, which is sometimes done, mm-hmm. because then we could never get get out of bed in the morning. It's safer to stay in bed. But it's so. I think it's this is both a political issue and a major scientific challenge, and which may have no solution. You know, like Pascal's wager. Uh, should we take that seriously, or should we say we did the role? This an imam could have made the same argument. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the interesting things to think about the emphasis on uncertainty. Uh, I mean, you have different views in political economy about this. I mean, as I understand, Keynes's view is very much is that uncertainty is always with us, mm-hmm. and that the role of um, statecraft or the intelligent statesman is to to manage that uncertainty in a creative way so that the policymaker is a sort of... Manage, um, it, manage it one way or another. Yes. It, do, do something. Uh, but an alternative... That, that's what it says about animal spirit. Animal spirit absolutely. is the urge to do something. Yeah. And so, that, so that's, what, you know, that's what generals do. Good generals make decisions. Yeah. Bad generals procrastinate. Well, but... Not, not, not always. Fabius procrastinated and won. <laughs> but wouldn't an alternative take be to say that given the kind of uncertainty that you're emphasizing, and actually even that, that Keynes emphasized, uh, given the complexity of the phenomena uh, that are involved, um, that trying to manage them can themselves be a problem? Because those who are managing actually don't know enough about the circumstances that they are managing. And that it's just as likely to make things worse right. as it is to make things better. The atrogenic effects of management, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a major major issue. Is there anything that we can do to to bridge that sort of debate that you know about the, the nature of uncertainty? Does it not at my age? <laughs> Okay, well, there's, well, that's a very good answer. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting answer. Um, I wonder whether we could speak a little bit more about um, what you were saying about the importance of history. Um, one of the um, pieces that some of our students read um, in one of our courses on political economy has some criticisms that you made um, of what's called the analytic narrative model in um, in political economy. And that's often an attempt to use rational choice uh, type models to understand particular historical episodes. And the argument that you made there, uh, as I understand it, is very much that these are often sort of retrofit type models. That yeah, what is how happening the, is that, how the leopard got his spots and elephants yeah, his trunk. That people are sort of picking the history to fit a kind of rational choice uh, type explanation. Well, what they don't do, which is uh, the first task of any one who processes theory, is to imagine alternative explanations, the best ones, and shoot them down. And moreover, for e- for the, your favorite explanation, to show how it doesn't only explain the thing you want to explain, but has surplus explanatory power as Lakatos wrote, ha, ha, produces 
can predict novel facts. Without that surplus expenditure power, there is no, uh, they have no value. So in one of my books, I use the following sort of trivial example, how to explain the increasing rate of standing ovations on Broadway shops. Well, you don't really know, but one explanation proposed by Arthur Miller is that you know, people want to tell themselves that they got something for their money. So cognitive distance reduction, roughly speaking. And that sort of would make sense, but it has to be tested. So one test would be, suppose that some of the shows were bought by firms and tickets given to their employees uh, who didn't know the price. Then there should be fewer standing ovations. That would be a novel fact. Mm-hmm. So that's just a trivial example, but to illustrate the general idea. But in a model where history becomes more important, um, how would you blend, I think this is what I'm, what I'm trying to get at, how would you blend a focus on history with some notion of a common sense rational model that you referred to earlier and a, a focus on factors like emotion? How, how would you operationalize that? So if it's not through something like the analytic narrative method, uh, what kind of method would yeah. be appropriate to that kind of work? Well, uh, I've just finished, uh, I've just accepted the other day by Princeton University Press, a book on France before 1789, and um, which is a big book of history, although I'm not an historian, I can benefit from the internet, as everybody can. And I think what I do there is more to um, more to add to the pieces in the puzzle, uh, knowing that we'll never be able to fill out the whole square, but more pieces in the puzzle, and it's just not a very satisfactory answer, but it can, I think, illuminate individual parts of, of the Ancien Regime, for instance, Using social science, they can understand how different rebellions have different patterns. Some rebellions have a single instigator, uh, others occur by chain reactions, and some occur by the common cause occurring at the same time in different places. So France, for instance, the harvest. At the time, the actors didn't quite understand this. That, so they ev- ev- tended to impute a common instigator to rebellions that occurred simultaneously because the harvest occurred simultaneously. So I think, but this is just one piece of a puzzle. And as I said, I certainly would not be able to, to claim that more than 40% of the square <laughs> has been filled. So, but it's fun. So that, I mean, that sounds very much to be part of what I take from a lot of what you're saying here, that there needs to be a, a lot more humility yes. from various analysts yeah. about what yeah. they claim for their particular sorts of mm-hmm. models, given the nature of the but subject uh, matter that we're dealing true, with. True words are used in tandem. More modest and more robust. Yes. Yeah. So robust, robust in what sense? What, what, what it doesn't do you... rest on very fragile assumptions about human uh, hmm. psychology, assumptions that we know are false and can at most, but not really, be justified by as if rationality, but it, that doesn't work. So, no, robust, like, as you said, simple rational choice uh, models, that, you know, common sense rational choice models, and of course, some, to some extent common emotional choice models. We know that emotions decay with time. So we know that even if an assembly declares uh, that any future propositions 
will have to be treated on three successive days before being adopted, we can predict that if there's a real crisis, they will ignore that. So there are some, some predictive, uh, pretty simple um, uh, components also of emotional choice theory. For instance, this tendency to, to ignore the fact that one is going to, 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 uh, to just forget about one's past decisions. A tendency already identified by Gibbon, by the way. Mm-hmm. Well, let me give you, throw a name at you of, of, of a theorist and, and see how you respond to whether their work um, fits into your notion of robustness in this, in this sense. So one of the uh, authors that some of the contributors to our research centre here have, have been focusing on is Eleanor Ostrom mm-hmm. and her account of common pool resource management. Um, now, she is famous very much for challenging some of the implications that came from one simple model of rational choice, the idea that there is a commons problem that whenever you don't have ownership rights of some kind, that you have a tragedy of the commons situation arising. And she points out many circumstances where that is not the case, where through some kind of uh, bottom-up mechanism that without there being ownership rights, people can address these problems. But the emphasis is very much on contextual factors, that there is a basic free rider problem whenever you have these kind of resources. Um, But that whether or not that is overcome depends on all kinds of contingent factors that really require analysts to go out into the field to understand what the situation on the ground is of the, the agents who are actually playing those games, as it were. Is that kind of a model what you would call a robust one? Or do you think it is still excessively concerned to, to with... To me, it's too close to thick description. Yeah. And I would like uh, I, to have something that is a little bit uh, less, uh, less context-dependent. Um, without, without yielding determinacy. So an example I often use is the t- tyrant's dilemma. When it's oppressive these people, two things can happen. They fear him, so that's successful so from his point of view, or they hate him more. Yeah. So that's again. So, but he cannot tell ahead of time. But at least those are two possibilities. So when we look at a past episode of, of of tyranny, we know at least these are two plausible things that can happen. But I think Eleanor's uh, uh, approach was a little bit, as it were, too rich. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that there was one explanation for for each case, but it was. A, I haven't read it for 20 years, so when, whenever it appeared, so it's maybe unfair. I knew her, I admired her a great deal. But uh, but as I said, I would wish for something uh, with a bit more structure, a bit more, uh, more of a skeleton. But, so, but this is not really an objection, and as I said, no. I haven't read her work for a long time. So yes. No, I, I, was, I was asking the question there in the, really in the sense that... Um, you are pushing back against predictions in many ways. Mm-hmm. And there, I think, I see that as a, her model as one which has some residual predictive element to it, you know, that there are free rider problems, but we always have to contextualise them. That, so, does not, that doesn't sound very predictive. Um, not predictive in a point prediction sense, mm-hmm. but I think you could talk about... Uh, you know, some people talk about the difference between pattern predictions and point 
point predictions. Mm -hmm. So it would be reasonable to say, perhaps, that you know, as a general rule, uh, certain kinds of resources might be subject to certain kinds of problem, but the actual mechanism. Uh, that people use to address them might vary because there are various contextual yeah. factors involved. So I see what she's doing is predictive in that sense, if not in the sense of the kind of detailed predictions, which, I mean, you gave very good reasons yeah. at the beginning of this discussion for uh, for rejecting. Well, I, I think I pass because uh, I don't like to talk about things that I don't have present yeah. in my mind. Yeah. Okay, no problem. No, 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 no problem at all. I wonder whether we could go back um, really to something that you spoke about at the, the beginning of this conversation, which is you're reflecting on um, what you've said, I think very very generously in many ways, about the areas where you think you've been wrong mm -hmm. over what's been a very distinguished um, let me just career. Mention, let me just mention for amusement that in my in the revised edition of Explaining Social Behavior, there's an entry in the index, which I think is probably unique, uh, called Mistakes by the Author of the Present Book. <laughs> <laughs> and then with, with several page references. I haven't read that part, so that maybe maybe I should go back and um, but go back and read it. But let me run a few uh, sort of examples or what I think have been important contributions that you've made. And, and it'd be good if you could tell me where you think uh, you may have been wrong. So... One of the areas that I think you made very important uh, contribution was to make the case for um, micro-foundations mm -hmm. in political economic explanation. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea of, at some level, a principle of methodological individualism. And you very uh, skillfully made the argument that that should apply to theories like Marxism, for does, example. This requires more skill. For me, that doctrine... Methodological individualism is trivially and boringly true. And boringly true. Yeah, boringly. but many people whom I respect think differently. Yeah. But I just can't understand how they. Uh, there's some some kind of disconnect yeah. there. But for me, it's trivially and boringly true. Boringly true. So that met the commitment to methodological individualism is something that you feel is appropriate at, well, at the level that you've just well, described it. More, more than appropriate, it's sort of as I said, obvious. obvious. It's a, anyway, so. Just as, in a way, uh, rationality as a simple principle is obvious. You don't want to use more resources than, resources than fewer. It's sort of, who can, who can disagree? So if you do use more resources than necessary, there would have to be a reason for that, which means that you had a secondary goal in addition to whatever you set out to do. So, mm -hmm. so I mean, one of the areas where you applied that notion is the idea of giving micro-foundations to Marxist-style explanations. So you were one of the influences behind the analytical Marxist uh, movement. Uh -huh. Is that something that you think turned out to be a fruitful research paradigm or, 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 or not? Well, as I said a zillion times, my Marxism withered before it could flower. <laughs> so I set out, to, uh, set out as a socialist and I wanted to understand whether socialism required Marxism and after 10 or 15 years, I decided, no, it didn't. So, no, I think the only, I was part of this group, the September group, also called, called the Non-Bullshit Marxism Group. That <laughs> met for many years. And I think it was a collective uh, auto-cannibalism that we sort of destroyed bit by bit pretty much all parts of Marxism, with some exceptions. For me, the part that remains is the young Marx. 
theory of self-realization and alienation. That is mm -hmm. the theory that remains. That's what I emphasize when I teach Marx. Yeah. So, and in what sense do you think that remains? So what, what do you think is the residual power of that, that insight? And the order well, other just my, my intuition that basically <laughs> is based on, I think Marx himself does Capital is a supreme work of self-realization. And he starved, and his family starved, and he got all sorts of nasty illnesses because he was focusing on two things, on uh, uh, the proletariat and on writing the book. And he, so, so the book itself is a supreme feat of self-realization. Mm -hmm. he, he assumes that his readers, as he did, know all the main European languages, Latin, Greek, know all uh, main literary works that he can cite only by illusion and so on. And so it's a massive. So, so even, what, however unhappy I may have been, uh, for me, but this is just an, an intuition. It's hard to spell out in the theory. I've tried to do so, but it's hard. That self-realization self is maybe not the good life for human beings, but certainly one very good form of, of life for human beings. To say that it's the good form, I've come to see as a bit too, 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 too stark. I think the People can live a good life by, based on friendship without mm -hmm. self-realization. So, mm -hmm. so just ha hanging around and talking uh, about stuff. That's a good life. So, I mean, would one implication of that be, you know, if you're thinking about the social order more broadly, if you can't base an entire social order on self-realization, you still want to have cracks within it where cannot, that can you still... You have an economy where everybody's a William Morris. No. Yeah. No, yeah, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, obviously that is the main, the main problem. Some people, have, some, um, some countries, for instance, the uh, Swedish Volvo company tried to create these sort of self-governing small groups, and that that seemed to be have the double effect of being more satisfying and also more productive for the firm. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't, I don't know what happened to those self-governing groups. Whether in the long run, as many experiments do. They sort of ran out of steam because they don't have the experiment, the enthusiasm of the experiment, which generates good good effects in the short run. I don't know, but it's obviously it's something Marx never thought about. He never he, his statements about the communist society, which he carefully <laughs> minimized but not completely to zero, uh, never uh, addresses that question. Mm -hmm. So, are there any other areas that you'd like to talk about where you think what you were writing about in the past wasn't right? I'm running through the titles of my books. In my <laughs> mind, it's a, um, Ulysses and the Sirens, are you still... Well, as I said, the, the stuff about constitution-making yeah. there is, is was wrong. Um, and also, <laughs> this is very emblematic of my amateurish uh, approach. In the first edition... I tried to use my mathematical training. I had two years of mathematics as an undergraduate, and I thought I'd come up with some very fancy stuff, until a close friend, a collaborator in Norway, pointed out to me that I neglected a very simple uh, simple rule for derivation, so all my results were wrong. And I, <laughs> so he helped me to write, a, improve the chapter in the second edition. So I've been skating on thin ice all my, all my life, and I've, been, I've survived because other people were generous to ignore my... To not, not to comment too much on my mistakes. Okay, well, let's perhaps we could um, conclude by, by looking forward. 
Um, so what is it that you're, you're working on at the moment? Well, um, uh, I'm working on a second volume of a trilogy. The first volume is France before 1789. The second volume is, will be America before 1787. And the third volume will be actual comparison of the two constituent assemblies, 1787 and 1789. And at my age, that's, that's enough. And I have a sort of, uh, sort of project I want to do when I don't do serious stuff anymore, to write something about humor. Well, what's your, what's your ambition for this trilogy? What, what do you want it to stake out as being, you know, the... Um, what's it going to change? Well, uh, well um, somewhere I wrote uh, something I should say more frequently. Uh, that was a critic on Amazon, uh, dot com of the first edition of explaining social behavior who said he thought the book was a lot too loose jointed or nothing too systematic and I replied and it incorporated that in his second comment you ignore the big picture which is that there isn't any don't look for big pictures I mean that's that's the story of um, I think um, Actually, quite extraordinary hu humility um, that 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 I take from what you're saying about what social science should be about, um, but also reflected, um, you know, in your own um, remarks here about well, just saying these are the the, the occasions in which I've been wrong. Um, I think we'd all be better off if if people did actually do that uh, instead of holding on to ideas come what may, I think. Well, uh, well some people might say, why, sh why should I read this guy who's always confessing that he's wrong? What I'm reading now, he'll be, he'll, he will, um, he will uh, denounce in the future. Why you'll have changed you? your mind in yeah. a few. <laughs> so Freud was a bit like that. Yeah. Freud changed his mind all the time. So yeah. maybe some contemporary readers said, why should I bother to read Freud since yeah. he's always changing his mind? Well, that, that's interesting, actually. I think you, you mentioned Keynes before. I yeah. think one of the arguments uh, Hayek made about not responding to uh, some of uh, Keynes's responses to him was that he thought he would have changed his mind right. by the time the right. next one came out. So right. that's a reason not to right. bother. Right. I don't know whether that's a convincing reason or not, actually. But um, Anyway, I hope we've... Uh, given our listeners um, who are listening to this conversation uh, some reason to read all of your works, Jan, um, because I, I've certainly learned from them over the years. And I know students uh, here in this department and elsewhere have learned enormously from them, whether they agree with them or not, whether they think uh, you're right or wrong, or whether you think uh, you're right or wrong. There's a lot to be learned from uh, reading. Can you I know. have a last uh, Absolutely. A lesson, lesson to the students? Have fun. Scholarship has to be fun the day it becomes a duty or motivated by self-interest. You should go into some other business. Okay, well, I can't think of a better way on which to finish. Uh, so thank you very much indeed for speaking to us today.